0: Let's get into it. friends. Welcome to the show. Welcome to having a blast. Hope you guys are having a blast today. I am feeling nostalgic. So today on today's episode, I would like to discuss five albums that defined the year, at least for me anyways, the year that I graduated high school. Yes, that's right. We're going to get nostalgic again today. I graduated high school the year of 2002 all the way back then. It's been a minute, almost two decades, a year shy of two decades in fact. But the five albums that I'm going to be discussing, today and there are a lot of albums I could have chosen for this particular year. This was a pretty special year for pop punk and emo music, but I'm going to highlight five albums specifically that not only got me through the year 2002, but I remember specifically and link to the year in which I graduated high school and I guess became an adult. I, I guess that's what they say when you turn 18, you're officially an adult in this country. So certainly felt still like a child. And when I look back, I think of all the childish things I did. Many things happened in 2002 one of which was let's just go down the list of noteworthy things that happened in the year 2002 let's see January the United States Department of Justice announced that it was going to pursue a criminal investigation of Enron so that's how far back it was we still talk about Enron there's a great documentary called Enron the smartest guys in the room and it goes over the entire story and history of that so if you're interested that began the investigation anyways in 2002 also when theaters, you had the first of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy. So Spider-Man came out that year, along with another sequel, or prequel, I should say, Attack of the Clones, Star Wars. So that's a movie I'd like to forget. As I sit here, I am actually watching a movie from 1980, which is not the year I graduated high school. But I'm watching The Empire Strikes Back, the true Star Wars sequel, and the one that isn't absolutely terrible. But I digress. Anyways, I'm feeling nostalgic. I've got a nostalgic movie on in the background. So why don't we just get into it, shall we? All right. So the first album I want to highlight is an album that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. That first album is Finch, What It Is To Burn. And I should also mention that each one of these albums, in their own right, could get a deep dive. And I may just do that in future episodes. But I just want to highlight these really quick because they're important to me and I was feeling nostalgic. So what it is to burn is the debut album by American rock band Finch and i tend to categorize them as a post hardcore band or maybe an emo post hardcore band the album was released on march 12 2002 so pretty early on in the year and it was released through drive through records really mca at the time because they had a subsidiary deal with the label independent label i mean drive through after finalizing their lineup finch signed a drive through a couple years prior to that they recorded an EP before this album, and I remember hearing that EP. It's kind of random, but I went to see Goldfinger, and Homegrown was opening up for them, Zebrahead was opening up for them, and somebody gave me a sampler CD that had a bunch of drive through bands at the time, and I remember hearing one of the songs from the previous EP by Finch on this particular sampler, and that was the first time I had ever heard them. And I really liked the song. At the time, it, it sounded different than anything I had ever heard, heard before, although the recording wasn't as great as what it is to burn is and was. And I remember visiting mp3.com pretty frequently and... I think a leaked demo version of the song Stay With Me was released on mp3.com because I remember hearing that song before the album came out, much before. It was in 2001 when I heard that song. And a buddy of mine had some way of getting those songs on mp3.com onto a Burn CD, and he did that for me with Stay With Me. So I remember listening and blasting that song in my car. I have fond memories listening to that song as loud as I could possibly play it on my way to high school. But What It Is To Burn is a classic. I remember at the time, it sounded bigger than everything else at the time the recording was just so pristine and amazing it was produced by the legendary mark trombino which we've talked a lot about on this podcast he also did bleed american he did dude ranch by blink 182 he also did the clarity album he's done a bunch of stuff with jimmy world but what it is to burn man just a behemoth of a record still sounds amazing those guitars those drums it sounds amazing huge i loved every song on this album this wasn't one of those albums that we would skip any songs on tour it was just one that we would just let go through and play through and even with the weirder more eclectic songs like the song ember that has all the electronic elements we would still listen to that still sort of perplexed by the recording of it but it was still captivating in its own right because it was just so fresh and new and different and I think Mark Trombino's production, it speaks high volumes on this album. You can hear that he was inspired and he was really honing his craft and really exercising his ability to be creative with Pro Tools and editing. So yeah, that's the first album, Good Old Finch with What It Is To Burn. And this album had a couple of decent singles for them. Letters To You never really took off the way I thought it would. I was hoping radio was going to latch onto that song, but it wasn't until the end of the year or the following year, 2003, that what It Is to Burn really started to get heavy rotation. And I remember hearing that song on alternative radio stations. And I think that did a lot for their career and their longevity as a band. And it was really great seeing their 10 year anniversary back in 2013, which would have been 11 years after the album. But that's when they were doing the 10 year reunion tour. And it was incredible. It was a sold out show and everybody's staying along. I know a lot of people kind of wrote Finch off as just a Glass Shaw light band but i never really saw them that way because i heard finch before i heard glass Shaw. so i think my ears always gravitated more towards their pop sensibilities anyways and this is an album that i still revisit often and still blast in my car often great memories associated with this record next album i want to discuss is another one that i think everybody's well aware of if they're listening to this podcast and that is the starting lines say it like you mean it say it like you mean it like finch's album is also the debut studio album by american pop punk band the starting line and this was following their first debut ep with hopes of starting over which we were listening to a ton around 2001 and the end of 2001 that was a staple ep we were obsessed with it we loved Kenny's voice. We loved their songwriting. It was almost as if you had melded Newfound Glory with Clarity. I could hear the Jimmy Eat World influence, and I know they were big fans of Clarity, and they wanted to make music similar to that, but it had a little bit more edge. It had a little bit more of that pop-punk speed. And on February 6, 2002, Say It Like You Mean It was announced for a release in July, which is perfect. It's the perfect summer record. We met the starting line on the Warp Tour in 2002, and what was crazy was the fact that Kenny was the same age as us. So Kenny is actually a few months younger than I am. So he graduated that same year and I think he actually graduated early just so he could go on tour because they were touring well before Say Like You Mean It came out. I think they had been touring for a year at that point. This album just exploded this band. I remember getting a two-song sampler at the drive through tent at the Warp Tour when we first played it in 2002, right before the record came out. And it had Given the Chance and Best of Me on it. And we listened to that sampler up until the release of that album a month and a half later. We were pretty well obsessed with the sound of it. Another record produced by Mark Trombino. A little less heavy, a little less big sounding than the Finch record, but it sounded just as good. It was definitely more of a pop record, pop rock record. I loved the fact that they did the double time fast beat in one of the verses of Given the Chance. And this is another record that we had on heavy rotation. Didn't skip any of the songs. Even the acoustic song we listened to, Without Fail, it was just one that was on repeat that whole summer. So I have a lot of really fond memories listening to these guys. We met those guys on the warp Tour. They were very, very nice. I think they knew that they were on the verge of stardom. They were still humble guys, at least the ones that I met around that time in my memory. Especially Kenny. I think Kenny was just wide-eyed and super excited to be a part of something that was larger than life, that was larger than him, probably more than he could conceive of at that point. Yeah, they were great. I remember watching them as often as I possibly could on the drive through stage at the Warped Tour. I actually have this memory of walking up to the drive through stage in LA and I think it was before the doors had even opened but sometimes they would have the bands just start playing if they were the first band on the stage and then they would open the doors so that there was music as people were walking in and I have this vivid memory of standing in front of the drive through stage and it was me and Kenny and that was it. And we were watching the band Steel Train play. For anybody that doesn't know, Steel Train was the band that had they had a different singer at the time but the guitarist was jack antonoff of bleachers and fun fame so pretty cool lots of talent on that 2002 warped tour but i have great memories of rocking out to say it like you mean it and it's a record that i revisit often i really love based on a true story and i may do a deep dive of that album because i think it's an interesting story associated with them as a band at that time but also just that record and how difficult it was to make that record and to get that record made and the tumultuous times that preceded it and ultimately ultimately followed it. But Say It Like You Mean It is a stone-cold classic album. It is pop-punk defined, waves of happy nostalgia anytime I hear it. So here we go, the starting line, Say It Like You Mean It. What can I say? So the next album I want to highlight is from a band that I should definitely do a deep dive on and I'll probably do the self-titled record because ultimately I think that's my favorite record by this particular band and I hope them aren't fighting words for some of you out there because I know a lot of people really love this album but this was definitely an important album for me as well. The next album that I want to highlight is Sticks and Stones by none other than the legendary Newfound Glory. So like I said, I was a massive fan of the self-titled by Newfound Glory. That was a game changer of a record for me. was the first time i heard what i thought pop punk should sound like as a major label it was a little bit more grown up than blink 182 it had been at that point it had breakdowns it had these really great bridges and they continue on with that theme with sticks and stones sticks and stones really is just a continuation of the self-titled record still sounds amazing produced by the equally legendary neil avron who's done a plethora of classic pop-punk albums, such as the first three Newfound Glory full-lengths, as well as Ocean Avenue. He also did From Under the Cork Tree by the band Fall Out Boy. So, quick story about Sticks and Stones. It was released in June, so another summer record. And I remember being on tour with Game Time, and we really wanted to go see The Price is Right, because A, it was free, and B, we were obsessed with The Price is Right. And we all grew up watching The Price is Right when we would get to stay home or go home on a school day, on a weekday. So that was one of the first things we decided we wanted to do when we went out to the West Coast was go see The Price is Right live. And that's exactly what we did. We had a day off, so we drove down to Hollywood and we got there way too early. We actually got there the night before we intended to go to the show. And I remember we were standing in line, or what would eventually be the beginning of the line, and there was one other person there, and they had traveled out of state as well. It was one lady. And and then us, and we essentially camped out on the sidewalk that night. And the following day, we're taking turns, taking shifts, making sure nobody cuts in line. We wake up, we go through the process of getting in, we get on the prices right. And I still have it on a VHS tape somewhere, where you can see a bunch of dorky guys wearing all wearing game time shirts in the front row. It was amazing. So this was 2002. I had just graduated from high school we're in Hollywood. And I remember thinking, man, this set looks really cheesy. It's almost as if they hadn't updated it since the 70s. There was pastel colored paintings all over the walls of people and flowers and buildings. It was really strange. And you don't really notice it when you're watching it on TV. It seems so much bigger on TV, the audience and where they sit. But it was this kind of narrow amphitheater. It wasn't very big. And there was maybe like 200 people there in the seats. But we were in the front row and none of us got up on the actual podium but what's funny is the lady that was standing in front of us the one lady in front of us in the line she actually did get on the show and she lost terribly but it was immediately after we went on the price is right for the first time or went to the price is right for the first time when we noticed there was a tower records right across the street from the lot where they were filming a lot of these tv shows and we go over to tower records and it just happened to be the day that tuesday because this is when they released albums on tuesday and not on fridays that the newfound glory the new newfound glory record had just come out so we went over there to purchase it and i'll never forget walking into that big tower records and immediately buying sticks and stones by newfound glory so anytime i listen to that album i always think about the prices right right the fact that we were on the prices right and by the way bob barker he was the host then and he was wearing a lot of scary makeup kind of orange it was the same when we saw conan but it was interesting to see him up close he was probably in his mid-70s when we saw him but it was still legendary and i'm still so thankful we did it it was so fun and we ended up doing it again on another tour so good memories all right so that's my third album sticks and stones by the legendary newfound glory So the fourth album I want to highlight is one of my favorites that I revisit often. Just had one of the singers on the show, Mr. Adam Lowerback. Yes, the fourth album is Homegrown's Kings of Pop. So Kings of Pop is the third and unfortunately final album by the pop-punk band Homegrown. It was released in 2002 under Drive Thru Records, and they had signed to Drive Thru in 2000, I believe. I believe it was a couple years before Kings of Pop came out. It was also the band's first release with their drummer, Darren Reynolds. And Darren was from another great band called Longfellow, but they had gone through some lineup changes from the late 90s into the early 2000s before they recorded Kings of Pop. And the album was released also in the summer. It was released on June 25th, 2002. So a lot of bright, summery pop-punk records. We were kind of spoiled back then. And by this time, I had been listening to Homegrown for almost seven years. Dan Hammond joined the band as their new second guitarist and he appears in all the music videos as well. But I don't believe he helped him record it i think they had recorded it before he joined the band and they were also playing the warp tour as well a lot of these albums came out on drive-thru records and drive-thru records had their own stage Newfoundland glory played the main stage but it was still an amazing warp tour that summer and we were fortunate enough to play it And it was the time of my life. It was an amazing time. But every single time Homegrown played, I would always rush to that stage and watch them play. It was something I had to see. And they killed it every single day. Kings of Pop does a fantastic job of breaking up the vocal duties between Adam and John. They have an equal number of songs. And sometimes they sing together. Sometimes you'll hear John sing the backup vocals and vice versa. You'll hear Adam on some of the John songs. And their songs just complement each other really well surprisingly because tonality they're quite different but kings of pop is a fun summer pop punk record and we wore that thing out among many other records but this record definitely got me through 2002 it was a lot of fun very fond memories listening to this one we still revisited a lot a lot of my friends bonded over the band homegrown for many years with actor age and what's happening so this is a welcome addition and it was a bummer that they had to break up a couple years after this steve evans was the producer and he was well known at this point for doing through being cool, among many other harder records and hardcore bands. But I think this record, it has... Its own sound sonically. The drums, the guitars, the vocals, the way everything sits in the mix. It has character to it, but it still sounds amazing. And I was definitely excited to get a new homegrown record at this point because before this, the last proper full length before Kings of Pop had been Act Your Age that came out almost four years previous to this in 1998. So that's the fourth album that I'm highlighting today Kings of Pop by Homegrown. and last but not least because there's actually considerably more records that I loved in 2002 and that were released in 2002 and we could certainly talk about those records and we probably will at some point but the last record I want to highlight today the year I graduated high school is and I was actually still in high school when this record came out none other than Thrice's The Illusion of Safety their second full length record it was released early in the year still in the winter time February 5th 2002 it's kind of incredible this album's almost 20 years old any of these albums it's kind of amazing that they're almost almost two decades old because it certainly doesn't feel like it Thrice's the illusion of safety came out after their debut it's the second album by american rock band thrice and at this point they were full-on post-hardcore the album was recorded in beltsville maryland with brian mcturnan who would go on to do their next record as well, The Artist in the Ambulance. And Thrice was actually on the tour in 2002 as well, but they weren't on the entire thing. But I do remember seeing lots of band members backstage while they were playing. They definitely had a lot of hype, and they were an incredible force live. I mean, they still are in many ways, but back then watching them play those songs, that was the first time I really heard a heavier post-hardcore band also include lots of shredding riffs, in the style of Old Metallica, and they were one of our favorite live bands. We never missed them when they came to town. I remember hearing them for the first time on a hopeless comp and it was the song Identity Crisis. And that's ultimately what led me down in finding their first album, Identity Crisis. And I loved that as well. But I think the illusion of safety really marked a pivot point for the band and a turning point for the band. It was almost a tipping point, really, because that's when their popularity exploded exponentially. And I'll never forget walking into a CD warehouse and they had it on display. And the gentleman who was working there was blasting it and so I asked him who that was and it was the first song kill me quickly and he said oh this is the new thrice and at that point I was familiar with thrice but I had not heard any of the other songs on the illusion of safety but I immediately bought it immediately loved it and showed all my friends and we were subsequently very impressed with thrice and they were definitely a band that we were talking about consistently and they're my good friend Gabe Hancock from the band game time his favorite band I believe they're still his favorite band. They were certainly his favorite band then, and I know he's been fond of that band for many, many years. But that was a band that we all bonded over and that we could all agree on. And they were just different. Post-hardcore hadn't really been inundated with lots of copycats by that point. It was new, it was fresh, it was exciting. And Thrice was an exciting band. And they still are in many ways, because they still continue to try new things and try stuff out of their wheelhouse and give people not what they expect. And I respect that. And I'm always, excited to hear what's new from thrice and I really love their last two records since they've come back from their hiatus and the album it mixes a lot of genres too it mixes melodic hardcore it's heavily influenced by emotive hardcore which was really popular at that point and really popular in the 90s and it also had that punk edge because there were some fast double time beats in it as well that's one thing that I really loved it was always fun to see them do that live and the album was widely praised for its guitar riffs but not only its guitar riffs. And how heavy it was, but also the lyrics. The lyrics had depth and meaning, and the song structures were odd, but they were also compelling, and they had a charm and a quirk about them that I think people still really appreciate. Anytime they play those songs live, the crowd just goes off. Yeah. Uh-huh very thankful for these bands, especially a band like Thrice, but I'm thankful for all these records because they harken back to a time in which I was a young, young lad, but I still revisit these records and, and get nostalgic and still enjoy them. And I have a history with them now. And that's one of the amazing things about music is it can latch on to you and it becomes part of you. And that's what these records have done. So maybe I'll do more episodes like these. Let me know what you think. What are some of your favorite records from the year you graduated high school? Let me know. You can always hit me up on instagram send me a message my handle is at kyle underscore deadlin d-e-v-l-i-n underscore underscore that's my instagram handle let's talk about this did you graduate no two maybe 03 that was another legendary year let's talk about it all right hope you're having a wonderful day having a blast blaring your records and i'll talk to you soon have a great day Bye. once make it to say goodbye so i'll just keep driving